0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you.
1: Thank you, Tana. So this morning we uh, we continue our series on gospel identity, looking at these really important topics of gender and sexuality. What does it really mean to be a man, to be a woman, to be married, to be single, to be faithful to God, and all of those things. And like we talked about last week too, and I think we just see this, you know, it's just it's hard not to see the confusion and the hurt all around us in the church, outside of the church when it comes to sex and marriage and singleness. It is really painful, and there's a lot of confusion because we live in a place in a time in which there is a real conflicting set of worldviews and experiences that are just kind of mashing up against one another and, and leaving kind of a wake behind it. And we talked about some of those views last week, too, but right there's these, there's these pictures and this script that's really been taught to all of us in a lot of different ways, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, that kind of run contradictory. You know, you have on the one level the emphasis towards sex, that it is just a natural biological function, it's like every other urge, this is normal, these are good things, you shouldn't repress them, rather you should experience them, and you should do them. You just need to do it in a safe way, in a safe manner, right? Just don't overdo it, but it's natural. It's good. You should experience these things. Don't fight those urges. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, this very religious, traditional culture perspective that says, you know, sex is gross. Uh, I mean, it happens. We we do it, but we don't talk about it. We don't want to teach it. We don't we don't want to imagine anybody actually does it, and if you do it, you need to keep it very private and secret. And it's a necessary evil in culture and in the world. It's nothing to revel in. It's nothing to enjoy. It's nothing to talk about. Right, and, and you feel that conflict. If you came out of a very traditional circle, this may be your perspe- perspective towards sex too. And it's difficult. It's almost a shaming, To a shame to talk about it, you feel embarrassed. It's a difficult idea to come at it. It's so opposite of that natural view. The other view that you just see so predominantly if it's in novels, if it's in movies or TV shows, but that picture of sex is romantic. This is a romantic expression between two people that just love each other. Sex is good if the love is good. As long as there's a lot of love, oh, this is just normal. Well, do you love each other? Then you should be having sex with each other. That's just a natural expression of human love. If you, And that, that's kind of the delineation in that worldview too of whether or not it's good or it's wrong is whether or not there's love. Well, if there's love, knock yourself out. That's a great thing. It's a beautiful expression of love. And then you have this really unconscious worldview that's really been ingrained in us through the mashing up of all of these things whether you think sex is a necessary evil whether you think it's natural and normal and you should indulge whenever you feel like it either way it creates this unconscious idea that sex is an essential part of our identity and the expression of it and the ability to express sex is who you are and it's almost an inalienable right that you should be able to have sex and I should be able to have sex with someone in some context, and if I can't, I'm not fully human. It's just I'm not fully loved, I'm not fully known unless I get to express myself sexually. Right? And, that, and that's a really ingraining idea. Now, what's so striking, this is what's difficult, is we tend to think of our time and age as very unique. You know, like there's never been a time like the, today. There's never been a, it, It's just not true. When it comes to sex and sexual expressions and sin and this confusion, these worldviews have been around since Genesis. You see the same perspectives toward sex all the way through the Bible. You see these perspectives toward sex in every civilized uh, society that's that's written about it. You see these same things. There's still the same issues. There's probably no area in a culture's life that is capable of producing as much joy and as much hurt as sex. Every culture really wrestles with it. You know, you go to different places. We were just in Amsterdam last summer, Uh, my wife and I were, and in the newspapers and things there, there's this huge fight about the prostitution that's in Amsterdam, right, which is a huge part of what it means to be the city of Amsterdam, is the free sex, the prostitution everywhere. But then a lot of people saying, wait, maybe it's gone too far. There's so much human trafficking going on. Where are these girls coming from? But then the reaction against, you know, oh, who are you to say this? I mean, it's a huge struggle everywhere, in every culture and every civilization. It's something that's worshipped, right? Sex, everyone bows at the altar of sex. If it's advertising, movies, TV shows, just marriages in our life, we, we idolize sex. We look forward to it when we're single. We hold it in such esteem. But at the same time, it's capable of such evil and hurt. And it's really reviled by culture, too, when it's misused, when it's used to exploit and hurt people. We can't escape those news articles. It seems like daily sexual misconduct, sexual misconduct. How do you handle these things? What makes sex right? What makes sex wrong? When is it okay to express yourself sexually? When is it not okay to express yourself sexually? How do we handle people who have expressed themselves, who have taken advantage of others? Where can I find a place where I can be loved and accepted? The culture is really in a difficult spot, but the church is in a difficult spot too when it comes to sex. Last week, the focus was really on God's intention for sex, kind of the positive ethic of it, this gospel ethic that keeps sex sacred but doesn't elevate it too highly and create an idol of it. Right? The gospel ethic towards sex from last week was that we make a big deal of marriage. This is why Christians make such a big deal of marriage. But we also make a big deal of singleness, we also make a great deal of celibacy as well because both are equally important because both point to that ultimate marriage, that ultimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that really we're all called to faithfulness and purity wherever you find yourself. And that was really that the emphasis. If you find yourself single, be faithful and celibate. Do you find yourself married? Be faithful to your spouse and have sex. Do you find yourself in a position where you were married and you're not now? Find yourself, You find be faithful and be honoring to God. And we're going to talk about more of this today because if we're going to take this seriously, the positive aspects of sex, if we're going to actually demonstrate a good gospel ethic when it comes to sexuality, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, then we also have got to take seriously the sinful expressions of these things and flee from them. Scripture speaks of these things often, and the world unfortunately, right, it rarely hears a positive message of sex coming from the church, which has been to our detriment. Right, most of the world and most of the culture looks at Christianity as saying, you know, Christianity just really doesn't want anybody to have sex and seems to really care overly about who's having sex and just wants to stop it. So we have to really then look at this. So what, is, what does Scripture actually say about sex and what does Scripture actually say about sexual immorality? What makes sex wrong from a biblical perspective? What is it that we're supposed to engage in, but then what is it also that we're supposed to flee from? And so today we're going to look at what the scriptures has to say about these things. Now the, the idea of sexual immorality, and it really comes down to one word, this pornea, pornea this, really this one word that gets used over and over again in the New Testament. It's used over 12 times, and man, I didn't realize just how controversial this word is. I did all my sermon prep through the week, and then I just was for fun looking up some stuff, some articles on the, and you're like, whoa, wow, I had no idea there's such controversy over how you d- define this term. And it really is, because it's a huge idea. Paul uses this over and over again. Jesus uses this term to flee from pornea, to avoid pornea. Have no pornea among you. Don't, don't have this. It's a term that's it's just sexual immorality. That's what the word means. You should have no sexual immorality. None of it. Well, if you look at what this actually means, how is it used in the New Testament? We just read Paul using it here in 1 Thessalonians. He uses it elsewhere. Jesus uses it in Matthew if you're to understand what it means, basically sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the marriage covenant of a husband and a wife. That's it. And it's really straightforward. Any sexual act that happens outside of the marriage covenant is sin. It's sexual immorality. It's wrong. It's to be avoided, and it causes pain and damage. Anything that doesn't reflect that God-given intention Like we saw from last week, anything that doesn't reflect that complete and joyous self-giving of oneself in marriage is wrong. Any attempt to isolate and experience one aspect of sex outside of the wholeness of sex is a monstrosity in the New Testament. It's to be avoided. Now what this means, and this is what makes it a controversial understanding of the of the term, is it's really broad. Sexual immorality, then, really covers a lot of things. And, in fact, sexual immorality covers everyone, whether you're married or you're single. You can engage in sexual immorality, whether you are a man, whether you're a woman. Everyone falls victim to sexual immorality. Everyone needs to deal with sexual immorality. For a lot of Christians over the years, translating this term or trying to understand it, you know, it's easy to try to make it be about homosexuals or try to make it be about... Uh, fornication or to make it be about adultery or you're trying to pick what sexual expression is the sin that Paul's so against but the New Testament just won't let us off that hook it speaks incredibly broadly in such a way that it makes it possible for all of us to engage in sexual immorality and in fact as we look at it it seems that we all do engage in sexual immorality we all are called to flee from sexual immorality wherever we find ourselves That this term, that this instruction, the sin, covers all of us. And what it looks like today and then, right? I mean, you look at what is sexual immorality then, if it's such a broad idea. Here's some of the big ones that we see in culture and we saw now and we've seen like in the first century in the Roman world. But the biggest one is probably pornography. I I don't know if you've done any statistical studies on pornography usage or just what's going on in the world when it comes to pornography, but it's startling. And many of you probably already know these things. I mean, it's a $4.9 billion a year industry, is the porn industry in America. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. There are 40 million American users, regular users, 40 million individual users of pornography in America that visit it at least monthly, a unique visitor. That's a lot of porn use. 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit porn sites monthly. Uh, among young adults, this was really interesting, I think this was out of the New York Times did a study on morality, but they asked millennials and young adults, you know, w- list these things, what's morally worse? They ranked uh, not recycling, right, as morally worse than watching pornography, right? It's just become acceptable. I mean, the, the, the numbers that actually view pornography as a problem in the culture, it's very, very, very low. Now, that's, there's a reaction against this, too. If you're also paying attention to culture, there's been a lot of pushback, not from religious circles, but even from non-religious circles. And psychology has really been leading the way on this, trying to get young men and young women off of pornography because it's really rewiring their brains and the way that they interact with people, the way that they work, the way that they pursue relationships. So I mean, that usage, hopefully, the culture even sees that this is wrong. But it's, it's startling how much of that exists. Prostitution is another huge issue within our country and, and here in the Twin Cities. There's an estimated one million prostitutes in the U.S. I know many of you have worked with various organizations that have helped uh, men and women break free from these cycles of, of prostitution. That's a $14 billion industry in the U.S., right? I mean, that dwarfs pornography. Uh, you know, how much money is, is exchanging hands when it comes to sex? In a survey, and it's amazing that men would even say this, but 14% of all men said, have said they paid for sex at some time in their life. That's a big number. Those who are over 30, single men over the age of 30, it's 30% have paid for sex at some point in their life. That's a huge issue. Sex outside of marriage, right, that's the truly staggering one. For those of you who are Pursuing marriage or who did pursue marriage, that idea of not having sex before marriage is thought of as laughable, and mainly because the numbers back that up. I mean, it's well over 91, 92% of the country has premarital sex. I mean, it's a very, very small figure of people who would say that they didn't have sex before they got married. Uh, And well over, and for young adults, 79% of young adults view that as a good thing. You should have sex before you're married that that's a positive right it's the way in which you figure out what kind of spouse you want it's the way you find out whether or not you're truly compatible it's the way you figure out if this is your soulmate right well of course you should have sex before you get married why would you not it would be worse it would be unimaginable to not have sex is that cultural narrative because then you're going to get married and you're going to oh i married the wrong person how do you know this is the person you're going to you're going to be with forever unless you have sex That's the cultural narrative Adultery is such a powerful expression of this, too. The physical and emotional adultery, 22% of men admit to having engaged in some adulterous act during their marriage. That's a pretty high percentage, too. And many of us know the hurt and the pain personally or someone close to us. I mean, everyone's life has been touched by adultery, divorce, remarriage. It's a, it is just such a commonality. And you really saw that divorce rate spiking in the 80s. Now the reaction against that has been to wait to get married longer and longer. The divorce rate's going down because really now you have the kids of all these divorced families from the 80s saying, well, I don't want to do that to my kids. We're going to be together for a long time, but we'll get married once we have a kid. So now they're, it's child and then marriage and hopefully making it last. But it, you see these issues everywhere, this idea of sexual immorality, it's just, it's nothing new. And the expressions are varied. The expressions are all over the place. We've all engaged in some of these in some manner. And the effects are right in front of us. And what's really startling is that, like I said, we don't live in a different age than when Paul was writing. All of these same issues were common issues and present within the Roman world as well. Pornography usage is huge in the Roman world. I don't know if you, if you probably don't know that, but it's, it, it's crazy when you actually start looking at the historical records and the artifacts and the paintings of things. You know, like right now we talk about like the number of websites that are dedicated to porn. In the Roman world, what's startling is the number of paintings that are just pornographic or artwork and pottery that's all pornographic and just served for pornographic purposes. There were all houses that men would go to just to view pornography together. There were houses where they'd go to to engage in prostitution together. It was just common. It's just what you did with the same issues, the same conflicting worldviews in the first century. Because those those conflicting worldviews, these conflicting ideas are just always present. I mean, read the book of Leviticus. The Israelites are engaging in sex with anything and anyone. And God has to speak to them and say, stop, here, I'll give you a list. Don't have sex with any of the following people. Don't have sex with any of the following animals. Don't have sex. Stop having sex with everything. This has always been... One of these issues that's just so pernicious. It's always been there and it's still with us today. And the New Testament it just screams to us to flee from it. You should have nothing to do with this. Don't you understand what I made you for as a husband and a wife? Don't you understand the fullness of joy that I have for you in marriage? Don't you understand the purpose of sex? You have to flee and run from sexual immorality. And we see through scripture why it's wrong, right? Why is it so wrong for us to engage in sex? This is, right, the kind of culture's cry to us as Christians and to the church. You know, what's your big deal? Why do you think having sex is such a bad thing? I think it's a great thing. I enjoy it. It brings me closer to my boyfriend or my girlfriend. It, it lets me express who I am. I feel full. I feel happy. I mean, what, what's your problem? <laughs> why do you think this is such a problem? Well, scripturally, every sect act, sex act, is supposed to reflect an absolute and complete covenant unity. That's what it's intended for. Every sexual act is intended to reflect that absolute and complete covenant. There must be no physical union unless there's also every other kind of union. That's what the scripture says. Every other kind of union has to be present, legal, economic, personal, emotional, spiritual, for sex to be safe. For sex to actually be what it was intended to be, it has to be within that covenant. There must be, there can't be just one type of unity without the rest of the unity. C.S. Lewis gives this image in Mere Christianity of sex without marriage is like tasting food and spitting it out continually, right? Not letting it digest. It tastes good, but it's not the full, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, you could eat it too, (laughs) You know, it could be better. It could be there's a more to this. You're separating one aspect of this and loving it and doing it all the time, but you're missing out on the fullness of it. The purpose of sex is not personal self-expression, right? We don't have sex in order to be happy. That's what the cultural narrative tells us, is that to be happy, you have to be having great sex. And if you're not having great sex, there's something wrong with you or you're to be lamented because you're not having this amazing, wonderful sex. But that's not what sex was intended for. Rather, sex is a personal self-donation. It's a giving of yourself to someone. It's an imitation of God and of the Trinity. It's a witness to the gospel and to the kingdom. Sex, sexual immorality is wrong because sex always obligates you to give yourself completely to someone. And so to have sex with someone without fully giving yourself to someone is a monstrosity. right? Lewis again would say that's like walking around without a head on. You know, it's, it's gross. It's, it's crazy. How can you do, why would you keep engaging in this? You under, this is an intention, this was intended so you could fully give yourself, not partly give yourself. It's actually unethical to only partly give yourself to another human being. Maybe scripture's kind of picture. Why are you robbing them? You're giving something, but you're really not giving. You're just taking, and you're, it's not within that broad covenant of safety. Sex is not, if, if sex, if sex is not a selfless act of love leading to greater unity within the covenant of marriage, it's sin. That's the biblical picture. If sex is not leading to unity, if sex is not leading to that covenant, not reflecting the covenant of marriage, it's wrong, and it's damaging. It hurts people. And that was really apparent in that Thessalonian reading, how much it hurts people, sex outside of marriage. The cultural script, right, again, tells us that sex is fine as long as it's consensual. Right, and you can, you've seen this culture trying to define what would make, like, what makes sex okay? It, 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 desperate for a leg to stand on. Right, like, when, what, could I fi- what can I finally say is... This makes it okay. Consensualness is the, is the last straw that culture's kind of found to stand on. To the point now, I don't know if you pay attention, like at the U and at many public universities now, if you're going to have sex with another student or if a is going to have sex, these rules apply to everybody who's having sex on a college campus, you have to get verbal consent before you can engage in sex. Or they could report you to the Office of Human... Dep- you, know, you have to get them to verbally say, I consent to having sex with you. That's great. (laughs) That's really the biblical picture of love and safety, because otherwise sex isn't safe unless you have a verbal consent, basically recorded, so that you could defend yourself if there's an accusation against you. That's where culture's landed. It's got to be consensual, but as long as it's consensual, you should be free to do what you want to do. That's what culture says. Be free to do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as your sexual expression isn't hurting anybody, it's fine, right? Get off my back. I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting other people. The people I have sex with, how I express myself is consensual. They agree. We're all adults. This is all fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. You should be free to do what you want because underneath it, there's this intrinsic belief that your sexual desires and your attractions are natural. These experiences, these desires really define you as a person. And it really is the core of who you are as a person. So having sex is really this extension of me. And I should be able to do it. And it's crucial for my fulfillment. The problem is, from a biblical perspective, and just from a reality perspective, your behavior always impacts other people. There's no behavior that doesn't have an impact on somebody else. The statement of, I can do whatever I want, I'm not hurting anyone, it just isn't true. Many of you know this firsthand with any behavior. If it was drugs or alcohol, if it's over shopping or gambling or any of these things, your behavior is never isolated. You never only affect yourself. It always impacts other people, yourself and others. Fulfilling your desires comes with a cost. For me to do what I want to do, it costs somebody. When it comes to sexual immorality, the world is already recognizing the cost from a cultural level, right, of engaging in this. The rewiring of brains, the rewiring of how we, our emotions, how we express ourselves, the need for watching certain ages not look at pornography or to flee from overindulgence in certain sexual acts, all these things. I mean, the, everyone's starting to see that, Christian or not. But according to scripture, Right, and especially just even the Thessalonians passage, sex has very personal community and kingdom ramifications. Right, because sex was intended to have those things. Sex was intended to be an expression and a way of building up the kingdom of God. It was intended as a way to experience his fullness. It was intended as a way to really build up and to experience love and pleasure. So when we misuse sex and when we engage in sexual immorality, it's going to have ramifications for all of those things too. The impact of sexual immorality is really immense. And many of you have seen this up close. Many of you have have been the perpetrator of this damage on others. It hurts. It hurts the people around you. It hurts your family. It hurts your friends. It hurts you. It hurts the person that you were in a relationship against and with. It hurts the church. You know, many of you have experienced this or know this. You know, when someone is engaging in sexual immorality, it affects everybody. You can't not see that. And you saw it here in Thessalonians. Don't sin, don't harm your brother or your sister in this manner. When we engage in sexual immorality, this is not just a private affair, but it's something that really affects the whole church, the whole kingdom. The impact is really immense. And the final impact that we see in Thessalonians here is that there's a hindering of the Holy Spirit. Engaging in sexual immorality, It hurts. It hurts us on an individual level. It hurts us in our relationships with others. It causes pain and distress. It causes others to sin and join in. I mean, it's just got all these things, but then ultimately it also hinders our ability to experience the Spirit of God. And this is what all sin does. It's not a salvation issue, but it's an issue of not being able to f- experience my salvation, to be hindered from feeling the love of God, from feeling his presence, for, for to, to feel and to know and to join in the Spirit's work. That's why Paul is so strong in his admonitions against sexual immorality. Because we tend to believe, right, we, we believe these lies when it comes to this of, look, sexual immorality is bad. I get it. But it's not that bad. I mean, everybody is engaging in sexual immorality. And I can manage this pretty well. You know, look, I'm not, engaged, I'm not going all the way to this extreme. You know, the pornography, come on, everybody's doing pornography. What's the big deal with this? Or fantasizing or, you know, it's not that bad. I'm fine. Not recognizing the true impact of those things. Not recognizing that's just as bad. The spiritual ramifications of sin and the hindering of the spirit and the experiencing of God that is hurt by that And how it hurts our relationship with our spouse, how it hurts and will hurt our future relationship with spouses, how it hurts and hinders us from being faithful in our singleness. I mean, it's just, there's so many ramifications of sexual immorality that has to be fought. So scripture is really clear that we're to flee from sexual immorality. We're to have nothing to do with it, but rather that we are to pursue holiness, to put off sexual immorality and to put on holiness. And what this looks like for us is as singles pursuing marriage, which is many of you, right? And Paul's really clear in, the, in Corinthians and Thessalonians. You know this, wherever you find yourself, whatever position in life you find yourself in, you may have chosen singleness, you may have not chosen singleness, you may be suffering, the hand, it, you may be suffering because of the sins of others. You're sti- wherever you find yourself, be holy, be faithful, find your satisfaction, be filled with Christ. And for singles, being faithful to Christ, pursue marriage. Don't pursue someone to satisfy you. Find your satisfaction in Christ, not looking to someone to fulfill and satisfy your desires. Being sober-minded and not giving yourself too quickly away to somebody. Right? Don't give something, don't have union that, wasn't, that can't be complete. Because you won't be sober-minded when it comes to pursuing marriage and understanding what God has intended, how this relationship is going to serve the kingdom, whether or not this is the person that God has called you to, if you're already engaging in parts of the marriage covenant now. Right? It, you can't separate those things. It's almost impossible. You come, become too entangled. Be faithful. Be celibate. Be holy. Right. Find your satisfaction in Christ while you're pursuing this person that you want to marry one day. So that when you become married, then there can be this full covenant of faithfulness and love together. You're going to bring with you into marriage all of your sin. right? It's time now as a single, if you're single now and you're pursuing marriage, it's time to work on those things now. It doesn't magically go away. Your pornography addiction doesn't go away when you get married. Your, you know, lusting and fantasizing your needs to get satisfied. It doesn't go away. Your wife won't satisfy those things. Your husband won't satisfy those things. Now is those times to find your satisfaction in Christ so that you can be holy as you pursue a spouse. For those who are married, honor and love your spouse, (laughs) right? View every opportunity you have as an opportunity to give yourself to your spouse. Look for ways to give yourself to your spouse intentionally. View sex as a joyous act, as something, as a gift that you can give and a way that you can experience God. And also, as married, joyfully abstain from sex. All of us are called to seasons of celibacy in marriage. If it's medical conditions, if it's pregnancy, if it's just for prayer, you need to engage in those things joyfully as well. Stop looking to your spouse to fulfill all of your longings and heart's desires and to give you the pleasure that they weren't intended to give you, right? Christ was intended to satisfy you. Look for those things. Find your peace there. We were called to holiness. We're called to this ethic of sexuality, of purity and celibacy. The problem is, though, right, the reality is, we can't just kind of leave it here because we do a terrible job at this, right? We are terrible at this. The church has got a horrible track record of sexual purity, we talk a big game, right? Many of you maybe participated in that, I don't know, taking celibacy promises and ring, take put on ring, all those things. But we're terrible at it in practice. Yeah, there's just there, you know, over the week there's more sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church coming. I mean, this is not something that we practice well. So what's wrong? Like C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity again, either something's wrong with the biblical command that says no sex. Except for in marriage, or there's something wrong with us. It's got to be one of the two. <laughs> because we hear that, we hear no sex besides marriage, but we're not practicing it. And, and those numbers, like we we're talking about, of pornography usage, of premarital sex, th- th- within the church, it mirrors it. Like, we're really just mirroring culture. We don't practice a real different sexual practices. Christianity doesn't, to what anyone does. So what's going on? What is our fundamental problem here? And the problem isn't our behavior. The sexual immorality isn't our biggest problem. That's not the issue. For too long, right, in too many ways, we make the behavior the problem, and we just need to stop. Just stop having sex. Just, let's just make some rules, some laws. Let's just figure it out. Let's get the teens over here and just tell them, this is wrong, and you can't do it. Let's just, we can really, we, we, we got to get a hold of this. But like you guys know, that never works. When you know the law, when you're told the law, then you just want to break it, and you engage in it. The problem isn't our behavior. According to Paul, according to Jesus, according to the whole New Testament, when he's talking about, whenever he talks about sexual immorality, he always points us back to the gospel, because our behavior isn't the problem. Your pornography addiction isn't your problem right? Your immorality isn't your problem. Your problem is your selfishness, right? Your problem is you. Your problem is that you're getting your identity, you're getting too satisfied from your sexual immorality, from what you think this is giving you. Because what we do, we have this tendency to turn all of God's good gifts, every good gift, we turn them into ultimate gifts. And there's been there's no greater gift. I'm trying to think if that's a fair statement. Maybe. there's maybe no greater gift than marriage that God has given. Well, maybe not. Celibacy and singleness is a pretty great gift, too. <laughs> but there's these great gifts that God has given, and we turn them into idols. And we've certainly, as a culture, have done that with sex and marriage. Where you turn this into something that you need. I need this. I deserve this. I need it to make myself happy. I need it to feel full. I need this. I enjoy this so much. And we fall into the habits and the enslavement and the sin to it. It's an identity problem, not a behavioral one. If we think that our problem is just behavioral, right, and you look at your behaviors and you say, all right, I get it. This behavior's got to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to cut it off. If you think of that, well, that's nice because then we start creating laws. We start figuring out where to avoid in our life. I will just avoid, you know, these bars. I will avoid these things. I will cut out this. I will cut out that. And then we're able to start unconsciously judging people who to go to those places, who don't abstain from some of those things. We Start to boast in ourselves, our moral righteousness, even so. Even we we fix our behaviors, but then we just start judging and looking at the world, and then we start, and that's how we start getting into that that cycle of pointing out particular sexual expressions as sin, and saying those are wrong. What we're doing is fine because we're not doing that, and then we boast and we rejoice, and we sin, and we hide it. That's what Christians in the church are probably the best at, right? Hiding sin. I judge the world for it. I see the sins of others. I engage in sin, but mine's not as bad. So I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to confess it. We deflect attention away. We sin and we get so ingrained in it that we can't even see it as sin anymore. And that's where the community is necessary. Because you get to the place where you don't even see it as sin, where you just say, This is normal. This is fine. This is a good thing. How can this be a good thing? because we get so ingrained in it. Selfishness and arrogance, pride destroys everything. If you think you can handle your sexual immorality, you're wrong. If you think you can handle anything, you're wrong. You can't handle it. You can't do this. If you think you're all right, you're not. If you're confident in your goodness, you shouldn't be, because you're not that good. This is what the gospel continually tells us. Being sexually immoral doesn't separate you from God. That's not what separates us from God. Being a homosexual or engaging in premarital sex or even rape or any of these things, none of that separates us from God. The only thing that can separate you from God is your self-righteousness. That you don't need anything. That you're fine. That you've got this. You're confident in yourself. That's the problem. And that's our problem. It's our problem when it comes to all sin, especially with sexual immorality, though. I got this. I'm under, I've got it under control. I, this is fine. I can just engage in it a little bit. It's fulfilling for me. This is a good thing. You know, we're going to get married anyway. This is totally fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's arrogance. It's self-confidence. It's like, wh- who do you think you are that you can engage in this and it's not going to have consequences? We need to approach sex and sexual immorality from a gospel perspective. And I think we need to do three things with it. There really is a need for every generation to own and confess their sin. This is really one of the powerful things of the book of Ezekiel, right? Like saying, because they were blaming past generation sin, right? And you can look at others and just look at everyone else's sin and be like, we're in this situation because of we're in here because of this, this sin, this, their sin caused us to be suffering like this, their sin. And as a church, it's so easy to look at others and look at their sins and be like, the culture is sinning, this is sin, those are sin. Oh, yeah, they need to confess. Ah, it just isn't true. I have a sexually immoral heart, right? I will be selfish when it comes to sex. I will treat my spouse selfishly. I will look for sex and for fulfillment in ways that I shouldn't. I will expect to be satisfied and fulfilled in ways that I shouldn't be. I I won't trust that God has enough love to fill me and I will look for it somewhere else. I need to confess. We each need to own up to our own sin. We need to see sexual immorality as sin and we need to confess it. And we ultimately need to see it as sin against God. Right, that was Paul's progression. Not just seeing it as a sin against your spouse or against yourself or against your parents or the church or something like that, right? To, oh, I'm so sorry I got busted. I won't do it again. I'm sorry I hurt you. You No, you have to see it as sin against God. Think of David in the Psalms after he sins with Bathsheba, and he says, you know, against you and you alone have I sinned, he says to God. He murdered a man, slept with his wife, impregnated her, and he says, I've only sinned against you, God. That's the seriousness of sin. We need to recognize it as a serious issue. We need to confess it to the Lord and deal with it. But ultimately, we really need to hear the gospel, and we really need to be filled up with this gospel script, that sex no longer defines us. Right? Your sexual experiences, your sexual desires, doesn't define you as a person. Right? And that actually our sexual desires and our attractions are not the way things are supposed to be. While sexual desire is natural, it's fallen. I can't trust my sexual desires. There's something wrong. There is something fundamentally wrong with me. If I did that, if I had sex whenever I wanted, however I wanted, there would be something terribly wrong. I can't trust my desires. I can't trust my urges. Sexual desires and sex are a part of me, but they're not the defining element of who I am. And you can choose to either form your identity around your sexual desire and experiences or you can instead choose to center your identity around God, who God has created you to be. We are not our desires. We are not our experiences. We were not intended to be satisfied by sex. We are intended to be satisfied by God. We are children of God. My identity is so much greater than my sexual appetites. I'm fully known, I am fully loved, I lack nothing. Because the culture says, if you're not having great sex, you are lacking. You are missing out. You are to be pitied. It just isn't true. I lack nothing. I am fully satisfied. I have pleasures at the right hand of the Father that await me forever. It's when we find ourselves fully filled with the love of Christ that our behaviors actually start to change. We can address behaviors, but until we address the fundamental issue underneath it all of who we really are, where we find our satisfaction and our hope, why have we been turning to sexual immorality in the first place? What did we think it was going to give us? What lie are we believing? And replacing those loves with the love of Christ And finding our hope in that new script, that new identity, who I really am, then I can be faithful. And then you will find yourself more and more faithful. You find yourself being faithful to being a single in the church and not lamenting the fact that you're not married. Then you find yourself faithful in marriage and not idolatrously looking to your spouse to fulfill your needs. It's when you find your satisfaction and your hope and your identity in Christ, then you find your behaviors do actually start to change and become more in alignment with Christ. But it's this continual cycle and need for repentance and for prayer and for honesty before God. But if we are overconfident in our holiness, right, we're in trouble. Because the calling is great upon the church today. There's probably no other way in which we could really make a difference, not make a difference in terms of changing the culture, but standing out in terms of culture than with our sexual ethic. You know, there's this call to evangelism, there's this call to the mission of God, there's this call to social justice and the meeting of pressing needs, which we've been talking about all year, which are so powerful, but we undermine ourselves by not walking in holiness, by not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So we have to take that as equally significant and 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 seek after Christ to conquer those things. Right. Let me pray.